Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Akash Nandache. I'm a regular host for the Animal Studies channel. And today I'm joined by Dr. Michael B. Prince, who's Associate Professor at Boston University, and he'll be discussing his wonderful new book, The Shortest Way with Defoe, Robinson Crusoe, Deism, and the Novel. Uh, Dr. Prince, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a great delight to join you. Um, I, I had a great time uh, reading this book, and it presents an innovative look at a true classic of English literature. And I thought that we could begin by discussing how your study differs from some of the historiography, some of the traditional readings of Robinson Crusoe. Um, could you please introduce your, your novel angle and also Charles Leslie, for those of our listeners unfamiliar with him, and his relationship with Defoe? Oh, sure. Um... I like to tell the story of how the book began. Um, there's a funny scene in the movie by Woody Allen called Zelig, in which he's uh, put under psychoanalysis to figure out why he's uh, adopting so many personalities. And as he, he's hypnotized and he admits under hypnosis that he never read Moby Dick, at which point the psychiatrist burst into laughter. And uh, I was teaching... Robinson Crusoe again for the hundredth time, um, uh, about 2016, and uh, realized that I I had never read Robinson Crusoe really. I mean, it's it's a trilogy. It has three parts, and people normally refer to Robinson Crusoe. They really mean only the first part. Um, so I decided, what the hell, and I tackled the second and third parts, which I'd always heard were pretty bad which they are. Um, But at the beginning of the third part, I encountered a very strange passage. And in it, um, the narrator, who's R. Crusoe, Robinson Crusoe, says um, of Don Quixote, the famous history of Don Quixote, a work which thousands read with pleasure to one that knows the meaning of it, was an emblematic history of and a just satyr upon the Duke de Medina Sidonia a person very remarkable at that time in Spain. I thought, well, that's funny. I'd never seen that in the scholarship. Uh, And then the passage continues uh, singling out a a malicious and foolish writer who in the abundance of his gall spoke of the quixotism of our Crusoe, as he called it. He showed evidently that he knew nothing of what he said and perhaps will be a little startled when I shall tell him that what he meant for a satire was the greatest of panegyrics. And that just, it really struck me that, uh, first of all, uh, Defoe seems to be making up a rumor that Don Quixote was entirely a satire written against one person. Um, And I started asking around uh, with Spanish scholars, you know, is this true? And they said, well, yeah, the Duke de Medina Sidoni was one one of the enemies that Cervantes was attacking, but not the enemy. And then I started uh, inquiring with the Defoe scholars, you know, what could this possibly mean? 
is he suggesting that there was an enemy, a nemesis, uh, on par with this Duke de Medina de Sidonia, who uh, somehow was the origin of Robinson Crusoe. As the passage continues, he stops this line and says, well, we're not going to talk about this anymore, lest I give away the origin of the original. The origin being, the, as I understood it, the, the cause or the motivating factor for Robinson Crusoe, and the original being this nemesis that he's pointing to. So the, the scholars I asked about this all said it was not a real clue. And, uh, you know, Robinson Crusoe is not a satire, and uh, they just blew it off. Uh, but I decided to follow that clue. And in 2016, it wasn't so hard to imagine that hatred for one man might motivate an artist, uh, you know, to, to create a masterpiece, or at least try so I started looking into this more. I had been at work on a history of English deism before I encountered this clue and happened to have read a work by Charles Leslie called A Short and Easy Method with the Deists. It came out in 1698 and quickly became very popular. Um, and so the echo of the title, The Shortest Way with the Dissenters, which was a, a famous work that had gotten Defoe in tremendous trouble, got him pilloried, and thrown in jail, and this short and easy method, it just struck me that maybe this Leslie guy was his nemesis. And so I started, uh, you know, following out that lead, more, more like an investigative reporter, or even a, a you know, a, a detective looking, looking for clues to a murder, um, than maybe the traditional scholar. And this led me in directions that ran pretty much counter to the received scholarship on Defoe, um, because this person, Charles Leslie, uh, who was the leader of the Jacobites at the time, that is the, the main intellectual, the most prolific, contentious polemicist supporting the banished Stuart succession. Uh, he was a very considerable person and an angry person. And it turned out that there were a lot of clues that linked Defoe to this man. And I was able to piece together a new history of Robinson Crusoe just by sort of following the clues where they led. Thank you for that answer. Um, this is primarily a tale of revenge and of a most subtle and gradual sort. I think it's worthwhile to explore the need for the subtlety on the part of Defoe as on one hand, he's demonstrating his wit and spinning this impressive web, while on the other, he's dodging the licensing authorities and being attacked by some critics and going through pains to remain undiscovered. Could you expand on his predicament in, in, in this regard? Sure. Um, well, I think it's a predicament that artists today have encountered as well. I mean, how do you, how do you counter... Um, a truly hateful individual who's very powerful and who is simultaneously in control of sort of religious authority, political authority, and is also a resourceful writer. Um, this was Charles Leslie, and uh, he was a formidable adversary. Um, so there is a tactical aspect of this question, and uh, there's a famous response that he had to not Leslie, but Jonathan Swift, uh, where he's dealing with this issue, you know, how, how do you counteract the baneful influence of, of someone you despise without 
simultaneously writing like that person or sounding like that person. And again, I think it's a problem that artists today have, have really been struggling with. I thought, I thought I'd read a passage um, about Swift, um, but it applies to Leslie as well. He's, um, he says, in, in pursuing an enemy that has neither acted the gentleman or the Christian, methinks no man ought to expect our keeping any rules. The question will be, what way to deal with this man-monster, and with what weapons we must fight him. It is usually esteemed the most honorable way of fighting, to beat a man, as they call it, at his own weapons, that is, to take the same arms which his enemy is most master of. But I must be deprived of that honor. It can't be practiced here, for the adversary begins with lying, a weapon at which I acknowledge myself no match for him. Uh, Defoe's being ironic, of course. Uh, one critic, Paul Dotton, calls him a great liar, perhaps the greatest liar of all time. It's part of the difficulty of dealing with Defoe is you just don't know where truth is or authenticity. Um, but it does raise the issue of what kind of response to Leslie would be adequate to the challenge and would not mire Defoe in the same mud that his enemy was slinging. Um, there is also, I think, a, um, a tactical question as regards safety. I mean, Leslie could attack Defoe openly. Leslie called for Defoe's punishment. He called for corporal punishment against Defoe. The reverse was not necessarily true. Uh, Defoe had to be much more circumspect about how he attacked and we see this in the shortest way with the dissenters, where he actually impersonates his enemy so well that the enemy doesn't know it's being impersonated. And from there, oddly, he, he begins to defend the Quakers. And uh, scholars have never known what to make of this, because the Quakers were known at the time as espousing a liberalized Protestant theology that was so so much involved with the inner light, so much involved with private conscience, that for someone like Leslie, it didn't even pass as Protestantism anymore. It seemed more like a kind of proto-deism. In fact, the Quakers were, were thought of as deists. And yet Defoe defends the Quakers. So my question was, why is he doing that? Why is he impersonating Quaker ministers? And in his fiction, in, in Mole Flanders, there are sympathetic Quakers, in Roxana, there's a very important Quaker friend who saves Roxana's life from an irate daughter, Captain Singleton. There's a dear friend uh, who's a Quaker. Well, in my in my reading, the Quakers provided him cover, where he could apply, he could attack Leslie on theological grounds, but all the while say that look, it's just a Quaker, it's just a Quaker, and I I call this um, an act of camouflage deism or deism in allegorical disguise, or I sometimes call it literary deism. And so the question became, uh, to carry out this revenge, what other forms of literary deism did Defoe deploy? And that made it possible to cut through the hundreds and hundreds of works he wrote between uh, Shortest Way with the Dissenters and Robinson Crusoe, uh, and look for other acts of literary deism. There are two notable ones. They're both long prose fictions, and both were called novels in their own day. In other words, Defoe wrote two novels before the novel, uh, Robinson Crusoe. The first 
is uh, modeled on uh, a lunar voyage by Lucian. Lucian was a second century Syrian Greek satirist um, who was known as an atheist, uh, suspected of being a homosexual, uh, and very much anti-Christian. Um, he had, a, had under, undergone a revival of interest in the 17th century. There were a lot of Lusian imitations and translations. So Defoe was sort of perpetuating a um, tradition of uh, satire that was prevalent in his day. Cyrano de Bergerac also wrote A Voyage to the Moon. And these works, works were known for their libertine uh, theism. We, we would now say cosmopolitanism. Because on the moon, of course, many different views are possible. Um, and um, that was the first effort. And Charles Leslie is under constant attack in The Consolidator. That's, that's the name of this first work, 1705, 16 months after he gets out of Newgate Prison, he writes this long prose fiction. So that became chapter two. And then the question was, what else? You know, And it was obvious that he had written another long prose fiction, called um, A Continuation of Letters Written by a Turkish Spy at Paris. And this was a continuation of a work that was very popular in the 17th century, originally composed by uh, Giovanni Paolo Marana in, in France. Um, it was supposedly written in Italian and then translated into English but then he was kept from writing uh, more editions because uh, it was religiously uh, questionable. He was blocked by the Inquisition. Uh, but there was a claim that there were more volumes of this. In fact, eight more volumes have appeared to, um, during the um, period from around uh, 16 in the 1690s, 1680s and 1690s. Um, Defoe was already late 20s, early 30s at that time. Um, and here's another work associated with cosmopolitanism, quite radical in its religious questioning. It involves a, a Muslim named Mahmoud, who is a spy on the West living in Paris. Um, and um, uh, it too was accused of cosmopolitanism and deism. So here's Defoe imitating these two works uh, proto-novels, uh, both deists, and also getting in trouble for them. Um, they were disguises that weren't disguised enough. So my reading of Robinson Crusoe is that it's continuous with these cosmopolitan and deistical early novels, but much better disguised. By the time he takes on the trappings of a Protestant spiritual autobiography, uh, run by Protestants, uh, notions of providence. Um, it doesn't look deistical at all anymore, except to his enemies. They too saw through the mask of Robinson Crusoe. So the, the revenge is subtle and indirect, um, and so subtle, you might say, that no one's picked up on it for 300 years. I guess your listeners should, should realize that um, this view of Robinson Crusoe as a disguised satire is not widely shared. <laughs> Perhaps not yet, but it's quite remarkable. And and on this topic of camouflage and disguise, it begs the question of mode. And clearly, metaphor and, and allegory are are extremely important to Defoe and as well as his critics. And 
I, I couldn't help but notice, given my own research interests, how within these metaphors, there's an abundance of human-animal associations, uh, as there are in, in many 18th century writings. And, um, and I wonder if animals or, or are there other themes that help Defoe in particular disguise his attacks that, that he might have had a, um, an affinity for? Oh, that's, that's a lovely question. It's the sort of question that draws an author's attention to aspects of the book that he perhaps wasn't fully aware of. But now that you mention it, there are a hell of a lot of animals here. <laughs> um, yeah. Starting with the cover of the book, I decided to put on the cover a uh, illustration that uh, an artist, a Swiss artist named Dumoulin, uh, drew in around 1810. And he picked up on the scenes at the end of part one where uh, Crusoe and his party, including Friday, are trekking uh, across the Pyrenees and they run into a freak snowstorm. And um, they're attacked by a ravenous wolf and a lumbering bear. And uh, critics have never known what to make of this. Um, One scholar I read from an ecological point of view uh, sort of complained that Defoe was really hard on animals and that was just making fun of this gratuitous animal killings at the end, just as a sort of a lark, uh, so to speak, and and just to you know end the book on a on a amusing note. And in fact, Friday is trying to amuse his party when he lures the bear up into a tree, out onto a thin branch, lets himself down, and as the bear shimmies down the trunk, he shoots the bear in the head. Um, but I, you know, starting from the premise of revenge, I couldn't help but wonder whether this wolf who's shot just before the killing of the bear and then the bear might be figures for human beings that Defoe hated. And sure enough, I mean, if you follow out the story, the use of animals to attack people in a polemical context was quite frequent as it is today. I mean, think about uh, scoundrels who refer to women by their, you know, as dogs and, and this sort of thing. We hear this all the time. Uh, even at the highest echelons. And so it's a, it's a common practice. And certainly Defoe was subject to a tremendous amount of this kind of thing. Um, he, uh, Leslie, called him a wolf over and over. He, Leslie wrote a piece called The Wolf Stripped of Its Shepherd's Clothing, drawing on the biblical analogies. But the wolf was Defoe. And the shepherd's clothing was his Quaker mask. And the idea was, if you strip the wolf of his shepherd's clothing, you, you turn up the deist. That's what Leslie thought. Leslie also attacked William Penn in a piece called The Snake in the Grass. So he had transformed this eminent early Quaker into a snake. Uh, Leslie wrote one called Salt for the Leech. Lovely. Um, and so Defoe got him back, you might say, by transforming... Leslie into a wolf at the end. And the bear is uh, someone named Henry Sacheverell. Uh, when The Shortest Way with the Dissenters came out um, and Defoe was trying to defend himself, he said, uh, what did you want me to do? Write on the cover as, as the Dutch do with an arrow saying, this is the man and this is the bear. And uh, also there is the uh, Barabbas, the biblical thief who was arrested with Christ, uh, and the crowd granted clemency to Barabbas and um, crucified Christ, and Defoe draws that analogy as well, because 
Defoe was imprisoned and pilloried, Henry Sacheverell was uh, celebrated in 1710 for um, a sermon that, that had also caused him to be put on trial. So Barabbas, Bear, um, Defoe was also a poet, so he heard these sounds. So there is an element of use of animals in this polemical context, um, but I think, Akash, that you might be, I mean, I think you're probably referring to more sympathetic depictions of animals in Robinson Crusoe, and it is really important to, to note that. I mean, Crusoe's all alone, right? And animals for him are tremendously important. He rescues a dog from the, from the uh, wreck and two cats, and the dog is with him for something like, I think he says, 15 or 16 years. He was a very pleasant, loving companion to me for no less than 16 years of my time and then died of mere old age. You get these stories of actual castaways who go crazy after like 18 months. You know, he's there for, what, 28 years. But the animals helped him. Remember, he befriends a parrot. I saw abundance of parrot and fame would have caught one to have kept it to be tame and taught it to speak to me. So he catches a young parrot and brings it home. But it was some years before I could make him speak. And then he teaches him to call him by his name. And this is Paul, of course. And you go through in these, but it's, you know, and then you want to kind of theorize that and say, okay, animals stand for X. Uh, Either they're the polemical figures or they're figures of sympathy. But remember when he meets Friday, he's trying to impress Friday with the power of his gun. And he sees a parrot in a tree and he just shoots the parrot, kills the parrot. So Friday could see how powerful the gun is. So, you know, one parrot he befriends, another he just kills gratuitously. Um, and the same goes for, you know, goats and sheep. He's, he's clothing himself with the skin of goats. He makes a parasol with the goat skin. He makes a vest with the goat skin. But he has a, a goat that he trains up from a kid that follows him around all the time. And I guess... I guess I would say from that that there is no clear allegorical way that animals work in Robinson Crusoe, as you might have, say, in an Aesop's fable or Orwell's animal farm. There's no one-to-one correlation. Sometimes they're very real. It's just a goat or a dying old goat, you know, in a cave. And you are free to interpret that dying old goat, for instance, as meaning more than it just some poor dying animal that he finds as maybe standing for a figure for him, a kind of memento mori kind of reminder that he'll, he'll probably die the same way. Or it's just an animal. And I think that's why people miss the clue with scholars miss the clue with the, with the wolf and the bear at the end. The way it's depicted, these are just, um, you know, these are just animals that they came upon in a realistic sense. One scholar points to the fact that in, in the winter of 1718, just before Robinson Crusoe came out, the newspapers report that there were actual snowstorms, freak snowstorms in the Pyrenees. So the realism suggests, of course, the animals would be coming out and they'd attack the party. It's all realism. And yet, if you read it my way, these are also ah, metamorphosed figures for Defoe's greatest hatreds. So... Yeah, and and the, and surely one aspect also is that 
this is part of the entertainment for, for the readers. This is part of the travel narrative and, and what's so extraordinary about the story. And and building off that, you, you've mentioned how he was pilloried and, and how his adversaries have more tangible threats to, to levy against him. But Defoe nonetheless remains exceptionally popular. And uh, and this bothers Leslie. And I think even you mentioned it bothers Swift at, at some point. So how, how is it that, that he remains so popular and, 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 and how conscious is he of, of his popularity? There is a fascination with his ability to command voices. I'm sorry, I think that's my... Um, that even his enemies, when they think about him, describe him as a kind of modern-day Homer for his ability to impersonate different characters and personae. If that's the case, then they're, they're sort of being drawn into the reading despite themselves. They want to hate the guy. They want to suspect every word that he writes. And yet there's something, I would say, non-doctrinal, non-ideological about the way it's never really possible to say, here's Defoe. Defoe and Crusoe are the same. When Crusoe performs his, you know, when he, when he sells Zuri into sa- slavery, or when he um, begins to colonize uh, the island in part two and trust the Catholic miss- missionary to convert all the natives to, to Catholicism, um, this, this you might say, okay, we found the real Defoe. He's a colonialist. He's an ideologue. He's a kind of apologist for nation capitalism. Um, and yet, then you get critics reading the same works and they say, well, not so fast. Um, it's not Defoe that's selling jury into slavery. He's depicting this character selling jury into slavery. And when Friday comes on the scene, um, the Crusoe's efforts to convert him to Protestantism are, you know, moderately successful. But of course, Friday asked that telling question, you know, why God no put the devil in hell, which Crusoe pretends not to hear and says, ah, what'd you say? I didn't quite hear that. Well, who's the author who's writing of the protagonist, the first person protagonist, that he pretends not to hear a difficult theological question? Uh, there has to be a space, in other words, between the author, the narrator, the protagonist. And in that space, I think, there is the openness for um, multiple interpretations and different views. And that, I think, um, is part of the appeal. He's also just a great storyteller and a great realist. He's willing to impersonate the life of a a courtesan, you know, Roxana, a high high-class prostitute, you might say. Um, this wasn't usually done. Uh, Liza Haywood does it some, but for a male author to write so convincingly the life experience of a, of a woman who must prostitute herself and, and is extraordinarily beautiful and ends up you know, in France, in the court of France, um, this, this kind of sympathetic evocation of damaged lives is, is just constantly interesting. And you've just touched on the, the space that he creates, and, and that space is also important as far as the, um, the question of deism in the novel and, and how Robinson Crusoe, while it, you, you mentioned it often masquerades as a pious work, Defoe isn't 
you know, synonymizing, he's not synonymous with Crusoe. And uh, he, in fact, allows for uh, religious ambiguity and, and spiritual conflict within the novel. And um, in chapter five, you discuss some of his religious persuasions more in depth. And I wonder if you, if you could maybe expand on, on some of those. Sure. Um, well, here too, I, I run counter to most of the accepted scholarship on this question. Is the, the accepted view is that Defoe was born into a family of Protestant dissenters in the 17th century. He was born in roughly 1660. There's some doubt about that. He was educated in a dissenting academy, um, trained for the, uh, for the ministry as a dissenting minister, and then decided not to go that way. Um, when the question becomes which particular version of Protestant descent he's closest to, the usual answer um, of the, the, the scholars provide is that he's something like a moderate dissenter, moderate as in still being Trinitarian, still believing in the Trinity and wanting a reconciliation with the high church. So he's not a Quaker, he's not a Unitarian, certainly not a deist. Um, and I think it's important to, to remember that because it does explain the Calvinist uh, readings of Robinson Crusoe, which call it basically an updated Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim's Progress for the Economic Man. Um, theologically orthodox descent, that's us the usual phrase. Um, but if you come at it from the direction of the attack on Charles Leslie and ask, you know, how far was he willing to go to attack this hater of Jews, Muslims, Quakers, Unitarians, and, and, and this same hater could name the principle that united all these people, namely their anti-Trinitarianism, then it seems to me not so easy. And the clues that suggest a more radical religious orientation or non-orientation then stand out for me. Um, uh, I'll just read you a passage that gives this sort of the, um, so the usual view, someone like Martin Greif, um, uh, far from the account of a practical man's adjustment to life on a deserted island, Robinson Crusoe is the record of a notable spiritual pilgrimage across the sea of life from a lawless course of living to true Christian repentance a symbolic voyage from sin and folly to the gift of God's grace attained through the sincere belief in Jesus Christ. And yes, I mean, there's plenty of evidence for that. His uh, disobeying his father, which he calls his original sin, then the shipwreck, which is his punishment, and then the atonement, the many years. It follows the path of a providential allegory. And so that's a plausible reading. If you're a, an enemy of Defoe in 1719, like Charles Gilden, or a, a, a minister, an Anglican minister in England uh, and America named Checkley, John Checkley, you just don't read it that way. You're picking up on a different set of cues, which suggest a far more unorthodox and even deistical take on religion. And I just mentioned, um, take Jonah, for instance. Right at the beginning of the book, there are two near there are two shipwrecks before the big shipwreck. And after the second one, um, Crusoe meets the captain of the ship that has just gone down. 
and has to admit that he was just on board as kind of a lark. He was just trying to see if he'd like to go to sea. And the captain of the ship gets irate at him and, and says, you know, what are you, some sort of a Jonah figure, Jonah of Tarshish? I don't want you on my ship ever again. I'd rather die than sail with you again. And so Defoe consciously evokes the story of Jonah. Well, think of that as working two ways. At the time, the Jonah story, which comes from the Hebrew Bible, would have been recognizable as an allegory for Christ. That is, the Protestant ministers at the time referred to Jonah as the antitype of Christ. Christ obeyed God's command, and Jonah refused God's command. Jonah was in the belly of the whale. Christ was buried for three days, etc. So there are all these um, typological connections that would justify the references to Jonah. But if you follow it further and look at the way the deists respond to Jonah at the time, someone like the third Earl of Shaftesbury in the miscellaneous reflections, he, he loves the Jonah story. And why does he love it? He loves it because Jonah talks back to God, that there's an almost human dialogue between Jonah and God. Jonah says, now, why should I go and warn these people? You're just going to forgive them, and I'm going to look like a fool. And God says back, you know, well, you better go. <laughs> sort of this one-on-one little tete-a-tete. Uh, and that's what the deists like. They like that it's a, a, a droll, witty story of dialogue, and almost the boober sense of dialogue between man and God or human beings and God. And my claim would be you don't have to decide between those two that the artistry of the book is poising these two possible Jonas, the Christian type and the deist countertype. It's not an anti-type, really. It's a, it's a countertype which sets the entire structure of Christian allegory in a different frame. Um, so that, that suggests to me a kind of complicated relation to religion, and I think it continues even into Mole Flanders and Roxana. Uh, Mo Flanders undergoes her, you know, confession and reprieve at the end. But is it believable? Is it really a religious awakening that she discovers? So those were some of the reasons. And then, of course, just following and taking a little more seriously what Defoe's enemies said. And I'll just read you uh, Gildan, Charles Gildan's response to uh, Robinson Crusoe. It's an amazing attack. came out the same year as the first two parts of Robinson Crusoe in 1719. Uh, He says, But when I found that you were not content with the many absurdities of your tale, but seemed to discover a design which proves you as bad an Englishman as a Christian, I could not but take notice in this public manner of what you had written, especially when I perceived that you threatened us with more of the same nature. If by this I can prevent another accession of impieties and superstition to those which the work under our consideration has furnished us with, I shall not think my labor lost. Gildan's normally taken as uh, this jealous wannabe novelist who didn't succeed. Uh, He got syphilis and apparently had, well, blindness for sure, but also a degree of insanity. So it was syphilitic insanity and jealousy that prompted this uh, religious attack on Robinson Crusoe. But uh, I'm inclined to take these attacks more seriously and try to figure out why um, Defoe's enemies thought he was so dangerous on religious grounds. 
Yes. And, and is, is part of it the um, interaction and, and, and his awareness for Orientalist modes and styles and, and models? You, you, you've, you've mentioned the, the, the Turkish spy, but I wondered if how, how that plays into uh, your, your, your research here. Yeah. Um, as an artist, he's looking for models to expand the potential of the shortest way mode of narrative into, onto a larger canvas. And these Orientalist and cosmopolitan fictions were doing the same thing. Uh, they were they too were written either in a Catholic context or a Protestant context where the authors had to disguise their critiques of um, theology, theocracy, uh, and the political union of church and state. They had to disguise those things in in imaginary voyages in the case of the voyage to the moon or in a kind of um, spy novel where all the satire against the church is voiced by a Muslim who's sort of desperate to go home. Um, and so, yeah, I think that he became very adept at, at impersonating uh, voices and forms that would protect him from, uh, from being uh, sort of outed as a religious radical. Um, but also that these were very popular forms of prose fiction at the time and available as a model for someone with real artistic ambitions, which I think he had. There's another aspect to this, which I think goes beyond intention. And I, I bring it up in the fifth chapter with reference to Eric Auerbach and Mimesis. In the, in the eighth chapter of Mimesis, Auerbach deals with Dante and the Inferno. And he isolates a couple of passages in which Dante depicts the suffering of people he knew, a former teacher, um, people he loved, and, and people he, fictional characters he admired. And according to Auerbach, the, um, the poetry depicts this suffering with such a degree of human intensity and realism that it overcomes the allegory. That is, it, 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 it breaks the allegory. And the famous line for an hour back is, is that the image of man eclipsed the image of God. That's not a statement about intention, I don't think. And I wouldn't say that Defoe intended to be a cosmopolitan, orientalist, religious radical. But it's a statement about art and the quest for an answerable form that would overcome the tendency to become ideological and polemical. You might say overcome the almost uh, necessity of opining and of being recognizable, of taking a stand, so that when the image of man eclipses the image of God, it's a moment where the incipient realism and humanism of the next age is canceling or modifying the structure of the Catholic allegory that Dante inherits. And I would say the same thing about Defoe and Robinson Crusoe, that yes, it can be read as a, read as a spiritual autobiography like Pilgrim's Progress. 
there are these moments, though, that exceed that framework and break it. Whether Defoe intended that, um, whether he wants to be read as I'm reading him, as his enemies read him too, um, that, you know, I, I'm not sure I'd want to make that argument. But um, Yeah. No, um, uh, well, uh, Dr. Prince, it's been such a pleasure uh, discussing the book with you. And I, I did want to kind of ask this last question as, are you planning on continuing research on, on Robertson Crusoe or are, are, are there other works uh, that, that you're working on, other mysteries that, that you're solving? <laughs> That's such a nice question. Thank you for that. Well, um, you can imagine my um, my amusement when when I discovered that a book that came out in April of 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, doesn't even have um, uh, Defoe's uh, Journal of the Plague Year in the index. <laughs> I don't even mention it. It came out in 1722. It's it's after Crusoe, but I think there's room for another a couple of chapters, certainly on um, the Journal of the Plague Year and Roxana. I had been at work on a a long history of English deism when I thought I was taking up one chapter on Defoe, and that's when I ran into that clue. Um, And I constantly had to backfill the history of deism to tell the story because it hasn't really been written. Uh, There's not a, a good account that takes you from Lord Herbert of Cherbury, roughly in the 1620s, to George Eliot, the first translator of Spinoza's Ethics. Um, and that accounts for, say, the, um, the influence of Spinoza in English literature and um, the, uh, the kinds of proto-deism that you have in some of, the, some of the important philosophers and novelists. So that's what I was going to return to. Um, and certainly there'll be something on the Journal of the Plague Year. Uh, well, I, I look very forward to, to reading it. And... Um... Dr. Prince, thank you so much for, for taking time to speak with us. Um, our, to our listeners, thank you. And uh, the, the book is The Shortest Way with Defoe, Robinson Crusoe, Deism, and the Novel. Uh, Dr. Prince. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Great honor.